0: Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, one and one makes one, singing songs that go well with the chord you're playing, gallivanting about in a teenage wasteland, and meeting your co-workers. Take a bite.
1: In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories.
0: Well, bonsoir, Tapstays, and bienvenue. And welcome to the first international edition of This is Vinyl Tap. And I'm joined by our host, Doug Cooper.
1: Hello, everybody. I'm speaking American our, tonight.
0: <laughs> and our estimable co-host, Tony Slagle.
1: Howdy, y'all. I'm
2: speaking Texan tonight.
0: <laughs> and I'm your humble producer, Jonathan J. M. Rowe, uh, coming to you live from Montreal, Montreal. Quebec. Yeah, Montreal, Quebec, Canada, while Doug and Tony are sweating it out in the vinegar runs, uh, saloon together. Uh, The home of this is Vinyl Tap. And uh, if you can't tell already, I'm actually taking over the hosting duties tonight um, remotely. And uh, not only is this our first international edition, it's our first uh, podcast using what uh, is probably the latest in podcasting technology, which means that we've got some growing pains learning it. Uh,
1: The latest in affordable podcast technology.
2: (laughs) And it's allowing at least Doug and I to be in the same room while you're off flitting around uh, doing whatever.
0: Representing this is Vinyl Tap and uh, one of our most, uh, one of the countries that follows us the the closest. Not only that, it's my brother and his family are in Sweden.
1: Ah. Well, which... Well, We turned out to be number three in music commentary in Sweden, we beat, thanks to your brother. We beat yep.
2: the uh, New York Times pop cast uh, last week in Sweden. They were number four. We were number uh-huh. three.
1: So uh, without, probably needless to say, <laughs> but thank you, Sweden. Uh, yes, yep.
2: thank you, Sweden. Very, very much.
1: I'm going to start learning a bunch of phrases.
0: Yep. And thank you, Canada. You've, you've welcomed me with uh, open arms.
1: Uh anyway. Oh, the, the, the,
2: they're journey fans. Is that what you're saying?
1: <laughs> they mean, like yeah. that. They like that rush band. They do. And oh, I'm Bachman.
2: wearing a I'm wearing my uh farewell to King's Prima shirt today. So
1: well, we ought to go ahead and get started because <laughs> we're reminding me of those podcasts <laughs> I can't stand. <laughs> oh, where they're just
2: yammering on like a couple yep. of yentas. Yeah,
1: talking about how badass. We're, are- we're four minutes in and we haven't talked about what we're talking about. Oh, that's yeah. right. Um,
0: Well, speaking of what we're talking about tonight, we've got a big album for you. This is a big episode. Um, It's one of the biggest albums by one of the biggest bands of all time and certainly one of the biggest to come out of the British British Invasion. Uh, We're talking about, of course, The Who and their landmark album, Who's Next. Uh, This was an album that was actually released in 1971. It's a phenomenal album that has, uh, has been very influential on a number of people for a number of reasons. Um, and it, in something in preparation for this podcast, I didn't realize this was only the fifth album that they made. I mean, they've been around for so long, but I guess they were just creating so many singles, they never really got around to recording actual albums. Like, like So that means that Tony, I mean, uh, Tom, Sorry about that. Tommy was their, uh, was their fourth album, which is pretty remarkable. Well, I, would, I
1: would just like to tell everyone, Tony can speak, see, and hear. Yeah, not <laughs> not as well
2: as some, but I can. Um, yeah. I, I, I think they were also, it wasn't just they were a singles machine, although they were early on. These guys toured extensively between things. Um, they yeah. built themselves up as a live band, uh, probably more so than any British Invasion band did. And that also speaks volumes to the amount of time, you know. We're dealing with an album that um, has a bit of a history because it it um, it it ran into a couple of road bumps when they were working on it. So,
0: yeah, that's true. Uh, Which we will get to when we start talking about the history of this album. But um, I'm sure it's an album any of us, the hosts and myself, would have picked.
2: Well, there's this a, is, there's uh, a, eventually. There's a dead giveaway on whose album this is because it was released in 1971.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But I'm pretty sure I would have picked it as I,
2: I would have too, as well.
0: Yeah. But um, not surprisingly, as we're alluding to, this was the pick of our host, Doug Cooper. And so I'm going to ask the perennial question did... we always ask our picker.
2: Jam, did wow. we actually say the name of the album? I don't remember if we did or not.
0: Who's next? <laughs> Uh, so this was a an album that was picked by Doug Cooper. Um, so I'm asking the perennial question. We always ask uh, the person that picked the album, Doug, uh, why do you think this is an album that our our listeners should have
1: in their collection? Well, I'm going to call myself out, and I'm going to say that this is almost a violation podcast. And the reason I'm saying that is because we have not stepped into the most obvious albums of all we haven't done pet sounds we haven't done sergeant peppers and we haven't done exile on main street all the ones that everybody wants to tell you you have to do um but we're pretty close with this one i don't know i can hear stoner steve saying that i don't need anybody to tell me that's a good album everybody knows that and uh, I, I think that's right So I'm going to do a full confession. The reason we're doing Who's Next is because at some point I want to do one of my favorite albums, Tommy. And we learned... Not Tony. (laughs) I haven't (laughs) heard that one. Orlando and Don. Um, Tommy's one of my favorite all-time albums. But we have already done The Clash, uh, London Calling, and we discovered how difficult it is to do a double album. So my thinking is, if we could get some of the history of The Who out of the way with this album, at some point we could go straight into Tommy without having to cover much um, history. Now, having said all of that, this album is absolutely remarkable, and it does fit into the Doug Cooper, where the hell did that come from, thing <laughs> that I love about records so much. If if you watch uh, YouTube and you watch live concerts... Uh, when they're doing the songs on this album on stage, it, I don't think anything beats it. I really don't. I,
2: I, I will say that this does seem to be a, a kind of a transition album for them, transition no from the band that they yeah. were uh, in the '60s to this arena rock band.
1: Right before this is the Who sells out, right? No, no, no Tony's right to- before this.
2: do to- Tommy, Tom-
1: God, <laughs> jam. yeah Sorry, right.
2: but but even Tommy has those same sort of. Uh, you know elements that that, that it has
1: that, a big sound that they're developing
2: right but i mean it's it's it tommy seems to fit perfectly with within both worlds whereas this is a step
1: directly into that this arena is out, rock. this this uh, is um this is the kind of music should never be played indoors yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah that's
0: really difficult i i that's a good way to put it I, or if you do listen to it like i really listen to it. I listen to it in my car quite a bit, but I also listen to it uh, in my bedroom. But I, it's next to impossible to not listen. You can't listen to it in the background. It's no, not it's background. impossible.
1: It, and I'll tell you, if there's ever been a headphones album, this is this yep. is a headphones album. Listen, Tommy.
2: Well, I I think um, I wanted to add, so you have your three rules, right, Doug? Your three... your The test? Tests. Yeah, there's the um, kitchen table test, which we've talked about. There's the, um, what are they? the I forget Well, they
1: the say. ones I know about are Kitchen Table, uh-huh. uh, Can You Read the Lyrics Out Loud uh-huh. Without Music, uh-huh. and um, The Monkey Test.
2: The Monkeys, that's right. I wanted to add a te- my own test to this.
1: We got a Tony Test, ladies and gentlemen.
2: Which is, uh, does driving with the windows down, full speed, and this thing turned up all the way, actually improve
1: the listening experience? And this album passes that test with flying colors. Yeah, That would be similar uh, to the Memorex test. Yes. Could you make yeah. a commercial of you getting blown away in your easy chair with yes. this?
2: But it's more fun to be driving down
1: the street, <laughs> making everybody
2: around you listen to it because your windows are down.
1: And uh, we, someday we may have a demographic that hasn't seen the Memorex commercial. <laughs> uh,
0: well, and Doug, you know, you you, you said... It passes the test. Like where did it, the, where did it come from? Um, and you know all the the reading that I did about this you know um, about this album. It is a landmark album, and the, and one of the ways that it's such a landmark album is the use of synthesizers on this. And you know I I'm always kind of a sucker for synthesizers, did you especially know
2: that when tony? the J M synthesizers. I wasn't aware of that. That's news to me. Wow.
1: So fun getting to! Uh, I will to say,
2: I will say, it's nice to listen to something with synthesizers on it, that, where they actually seem like they're accomplishing something and not just making a bunch right. of nonsense noise.
1: Are replacing real instruments? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's actually
2: well, adding to the layer of the music.
0: Well, that's the stuff that I I think that's very makes this album such a landmark. I mean, it it the synthesizers are very high in the mix and they do kind of set the tone for the album as opposed to uh, coloring the album. And the I'll, way that- I'll tell you what's
1: happening. I'm almost finished with Roger Daltrey's biography and Pete Townsend's biography. And I can't tell you which, I think it, this is from Townsend's biography. The Who used synthesizers in a way no other band could use synthesizers. I've always described The Who as a lead rhythm guitar player, a lead singer a lead bass player, and a lead drummer. There is not a rhythm section in The Who. The drummer is following the lead. The closest thing The Who has to a rhythm section is Pete Townsend on rhythm guitar. Mm -hmm. The other guys are not laying down a groove. On this album, Pete Townsend goes out and creates a rhythm section with with a synthesizer. So for right. the first time in who's history, there's something keeping time, and they're all <laughs> able to play around it, and it works so well. It does. If I heard those noises <laughs> and someone told me they're going to put them on a who, I go, like, "Why do you want this distraction?" But when you hear it, yeah, and everybody perfect. comes in around it, the, in the first song you can hear, you can hear the instruments individually joining. The uh, yeah. synthesizers And each one You think they're maxed out on energy And here comes the, the drums Here comes the bass And then uh-huh. finally we get a windmill out of Pete And the whole thing gets going
2: Well, I, I want I don't want to lose Something that you said That I think is vitally important to the Who sound Which is you said Pete Townsend is a lead rhythm guitarist Because he is he is Considered by a lot of people To be a rock g- guitar rock god but he is not a guitarist, a lead guitarist, in the way that any other lead guitarist in any other rock band is. He does not. Right. He is not fancy. He's not playing. Be, well, and it's mainly because of the way he got started, right? Um, but uh, but he, if you listen to the Who and listen to him carefully, he does little leads, but they're not. They're not very long. They're not super intricate. What he's doing they're is they're
1: just like an inflection. Yeah, exactly, and it works so well with it. It does people Uh, people uh raise him up his level as a lead guitar they they, when you see the rankings of guitar players uh, i never take any of those seriously right because they put such nonsense on there i mean somebody put lou reed on one um mick ronson's never on those lists no he's not (laughs) but he's not a i guess he's not a big enough star for people that don't pay close attention to know about but uh they always put pete townsend on there and Uh, so many other things get mixed into it's not a pure measure of guitar talent it's usually uh, they're putting in his songwriting ability and cool things he does on stage
2: yeah he's such a showman that's hard it's hard to disengage what he does live that's right uh from what what the songs are when you when you read his
1: biography and he's on the stage uh right (laughs) right before Hendrix. There was a big conflict about who was going to go on first. Oh, that's uh, right. For uh, well, um, was that Monterey Monterey Pop Festival? Yeah. yeah. So they said we got to go. We got to go before Hendrix. Yeah, because Hendrix
2: cause... didn't want to follow them destroying their instruments, and and they didn't want to follow Hendrix setting his guitar on
1: fire. <laughs> so. So, but uh, but Pete Townsend is very modest about his guitar playing, even though, uh, is a rhythm guitar player. He's, I think he's matchless.
2: He is. He's great. And, and, and I, and I couldn't find this, um, this quote anywhere, but I, I'd heard it somewhere in the early nineties that Pete Townsend had said that he thought the guitar would be absent from rock music in the years to come, um, And the reason I bring that up is not because I think he's right, because I think that's kind of a goofy thing to say, but I think that has everything to do with what his thoughts are about the instrument and what he could do with it versus what he could do with other things. And this is sort of the beginning of that. Well, he was right about it
1: being absent from a lot of music, but it wasn't rock music. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And
0: he's another thing that I think is really kind of overlooked is his ability to play acoustic guitar.
1: Uh, me, it's more impressive when I hear the acoustic guitar. I, I guess I can relate to true. it better, and I know yeah. that um, if you, there's not as much to cover up. Right, I like a right. scale on an acoustic guitar. You, you, it's 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 bare naked out there. Well, and what Pete Townsend's doing
2: with the electric is all it's all power. It's all yeah. power. Yep. Um. And it and which will lead us to something we'll talk about later. Why I have a fondness for this band. <laughs>
0: One of the things I think he has on acoustic guitar that he never really demonstrates on electric guitar that much is he can restrain himself on acoustic guitar, keep a rhythm going, but still kind of restrain himself. He has a hard time doing
1: that. I love his guitar playing. I his don't think
2: restraint guitar. is in the vocabulary of these guys.
1: <laughs> well, this, that brings us back to pants. Uh, there's a... Uh, a brand of pants without a belt. Sansa it's called belt? Sansa belt. Yeah. Is there such thing as Sansa pockets? <laughs> that would be
2: the who. <laughs> That'd be the who yeah. there,
1: Jam, um there is not a pocket. No, nope, there is no pocket
0: on any of this stuff. And
1: um... Um, This is going to be one podcast where I will not be able to say anything negative about the baseball. No, or, or I will... I will... I don't know. Do something. You'll go. You'll go. Roger <laughs> Daltrey. On <there>. I will. <laughs> well, uh, I, I absolutely love listening to him yeah. play the bass. And
2: Twistle. I and Twistle is my favorite rock and roll bassist, and this is coming from a Rush fan. So.
1: Yeah,
0: he's one of. I mean, he was mine for for a while until I started becoming enamored with with pocket players. But again, um listening to I him got on no his pocket album, player tonight. <laughs> No, listening to him on this album and going back and listening to some of the earlier who stuff like i mean just that bass solo he does on my generation
1: Or like uh, the real me?
0: Or the, yeah, the real me. That's just the,
1: the way that he can
0: just—it's uh, it, rhythmic at the same time, but it, it's
1: um, blazing fast.
2: I went back to my mother. I said, "I'm crazy. Ma, Help me." He said, "I know how So
0: powerful, thunder fingers yeah well, the live version of bob o'reilly he does you know original version is the piano comes in and then the bass comes in but he fills out all those when he's playing it live he basically fills out both parts
1: and just that's uh you can find that on youtube with his yeah. bass playing isolated and that's yeah. a lot of fun to watch yeah, especially yeah. with that. I don't. care. What am I doing here? Why am I still awake? Well, Look on his face. Is
2: it fair to say that musician wise, he's the mo- he's the most talented guy in the band?
1: I don't know. I, think I think
2: mean, he's at multi, I, he's a multi instrumentalist. He can
1: play a lot of brass instruments and yeah, uh, he can piano run piano player, um, and he sings you know, really well. He
2: does. He's got his voice. Right. His voice to me is like the perfect. Place in between Townsends and Daltry's. It's like the perfect yeah. middle which are, point. Which of are perfectly
1: things. far apart. Yes,
0: you know. And so I, I read one one thing in the uh, the second version of the uh, second edition of the the Rolling Stone record guy where they're, when they when they get John, it right, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were, they were talking about John Entwistle's solo albums. They it said John Entwhistle had the misfortune of being a good songwriter in a band with a great one. Because yeah, he has written some good songs. I mean, mm-hmm. Boris is is well, pretty funny. the song
1: on this album is great. Oh well, he, had, yeah. he had The creepy—he was in charge of creepy songs on Tommy. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, do we want to talk about the history of this band a little bit? Yeah, so we'll I'll, get, I think we we'll should get uh, encyclopedia Tony to blast through it. We'll hit
2: we'll hit the high points. Um, there they were. <laughs> well, I I, <laughs> I never knew. That, you know, just because I, why would I know this? Townsend, Townsend, Entwistle, and Daltry all went to the same school together. Daltry was a year older uh, than them, but they all went to the same grammar school. And actually, uh, Pete Townsend and John Entwistle were in, in a Dixieland style band called the Confederates when they were 14. And Entwistle um, played the trumpet, and Townsend played the banjo. And they yeah. had two, two other guys in the band, Chris Sherwin and Phil Rhodes, who played drums and clarinet respectively. Um, Townsend ends up moving to guitar um, because he gets in a fight with the drummer of the Confederates knocks him over the head, gives the guy a concussion and as a result he's sort of ostracized from his little group of friends and he he um, retreats to, into himself and starts playing the guitar. The good news is he's still you know friendly with Entwistle, and uh, and they end up forming a band. Called the Aristocrats, and then yep. that that transformed into a band called the Scorpions, and t- Entwistle.
1: No one like you.
2: That's right. Entwistle said that the, the Scorpions played only one time, and according to him, they were terrible. Um, but um, <laughs> you know, they they they're a going concern. They're practicing, and one day when uh, Entwistle's walking home from a Scorpions um, rehearsal, he runs into who else but Roger Daltrey who was um also in a band
1: called the detours and I they were daltry left school early yeah well you want to explain what <laughs> why he left school early doug he took his bb gun to school with them and another kid got it and when the other kid was holding it it, it accidentally fired and uh, shot uh, another kid in the eye and the kid lost the vision in that eye uh that was the final straw there were many other exciting adventures before that but what was really impressive about Daltrey's um, biography, his autobiography is he remembered everyone's name. He remembered the kid that took the gun. He remembered the huh. kid that got shot. And I'll tell you what was most impressive is one time when Keith Moon got a little too intoxicated to perform at a concert. They hollered out and said, we need a drummer. Can anyone play the drums very well out there? And this guy came out. He remembered the name of the guy that popped out of the crowd and played on that show. It must have been 20 or 30 years ago. That's pretty cool. And he used his name like he's been in touch with him ever since. It was very impressive.
2: Well, the the band he's in at the time is called the the uh, Daltry's in is, at the time is called the the Detours.
1: And oh, his his job at the time
2: he's the lead guitarist.
1: No, I mean his oh. other his real world job. He's working in a sheet metal. Oh, factory. that's right. He's he's uh, the, another thing about Daltry is the guy's all about manual labor. Which is uh,
2: yeah, because he built he built uh, the guitars that he played and the, cabinets in the Detours. For well, and the funny thing about the <laughs> cabinets he built for the Detours, so he built the Detours cabinets and they were enormous, but it was all phony. They had these little twelve-inch <laughs> speakers, so they looked ginormous, but they didn't sound that way. They were all it's all about the impress, you know, trying to impress people. Um, but yeah, he was the, he was actually the lead guitarist for the Detours, um, and then so he convinces Entwistle to join. Um, and they get Townsend to join and uh, evidently the icing on the cake for Townsend to join the detours was that they had a Vox amplifier and he's like, Oh, okay. So, um, at, at the time, uh, there's a, there are five piece band. It's uh, Roger Doltry on lead guitar, Pete Townsend on rhythm guitar and Twistle on bass. He picks, he switches the bass. Colin Dawson is a lead singer and Doug Sandon is the drummer. Um, and as I mentioned, Daltrey was making all their equipment for them. Uh, anyway, um, they start having some problems. Uh, they, th- what happens is the guys in the band start to feel like it's the lead singer and a backing band, and that's not that's not good for the rest of the guys. Um, yeah. So um, the lead singer, who uh, Dawson. Colin Dawson ends up getting engaged and he starts losing interest in the band anyway. And so starts spending a little bit more time with his fiance. They, um, kick him out. And, uh, T- Townsend also said he was a little too clean cut for what they were going for. So, um, you know, they, they, it wasn't working out anyway, because Daltrey was, um, kind of pushing his own way of doing things into the mix, which usually involved, giving somebody a bunch of fives, according to, <laughs> according to Townsend, <laughs> yeah. I.E. a knuckle sandwich. Um, this, Daltrey, uh, if you
0: if you watch the Who making of this album, he actually talks about that he had a hard time understanding that you could actually talk to people. I mean, he just grew up like that's how you decided things. You just got in a fight. And uh, if you've ever seen him he's got like he, he's been in lots of fights in his life. He's got a, his nose was broken. If you can if you look at him now he still has this like well, his jaw
1: throat. he he had an injury where um, his jaw when he was fairly young, right? Yeah, and it, it swore <laughs> it swelled up. He went to the doctor and everybody's looking at him cuz he smells so horrible, this giant swollen jaw. And wow. the the doctor does a uh, Less than perfect fix on him and left him with a permanently disfigured jaw, which I think makes him look like he's mad. Yeah. Uh, Like a snarl. If you
2: watch, uh, there's this great clip of them on the Smothers Brothers show. I think it's the way the Kids Are All Right documentary starts off with that clip of them playing, I want to say My Generation. I think that's a song they play. Tommy Smothers is walking around interviewing them and he walks up to Daltrey and Daltrey looks at him and jokingly he's like okay and walks away because he's because <laughs> Daltrey looks so
1: angry. Um yeah. But um anyway, uh Daltrey does talk about uh in in his biography he talks about the the red mist and that's what he would describe as his anger anger, uh, anger took over and made him want to fight. He said the red mist got me again. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. It's funny uh, when you think about rock and roll singers or whatever. You know, you get you think about someone like Plant, and Plant looks, you know, like an elf, and all these guys. Daltry is the machoist lead singer of any <laughs> lead singer of any band,
1: especially the British Invasion. Yeah, uh, nothing personal, yeah. you British people out yeah, there, yeah. but uh, there there was a time in the seventies where the line between men and women wasn't as fat as it might ought to be.
2: <laughs> anyway, um, so. Um, Dalt- so uh, they get a new lead singer when Dawson gets kicked out. This guy named Gabby Connolly, and uh, he and Roger Daltrey actually start taking tour- turn singing when they play live. Uh, so Connolly can go get a drink, and uh, so Connolly will go get a drink. Daltry will take lead, and then uh, Connolly would take lead. Daltrey would go, you know, flirt with one of the girls outside or something. So they switched <laughs> off and on. Um, they're they're supporting a gig for a band called Johnny Kid and the Pirates, and they were so impressed particularly Daltrey and Townsend, that they decide they're going to copy their lineup. And and the Kid and the Pirates are a four-piece band with a vocalist, a lead guitarist, a bassist, and a drummer. No rhythm guitar. So Gabby Connolly, who wasn't with the band for very long, leaves, gets kicked out. Daltrey becomes a vocalist. Townsend moves to lead guitar. That's when he takes over lead guitar from rhythm. Um, This is an interesting story. You probably know this, Doug, since you've been reading the uh, biographies and stuff, but uh, around this time, they actually get to open for the Stones, the Rolling Stones. And uh, the first time they open for the Stones, right before the curtain opens, with the Stones are about to go on, uh, Pete Townsend notices um, Keith Richards do this warm up thing with his hand. And he does this windmill thing with his hand. But that's the only time he does it. As soon as the curtain opens, he goes straight into the song they're playing um and uh just starts playing like he normally did but townsend thought that looked so cool that he decided to adopt it and so that's where he got the windmill was from keith richards and he 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 gets called out by a girl who sees who saw it as well backstage and so later on townsend asks keith richards about it and two things keith richards a didn't remember ever doing it (laughs) and b didn't care that townsend was doing it it was just like oh whatever so
1: um (laughs) It's hard to think of uh, Richard's having the energy to pull <laughs> off a full windmill up there yeah. in the middle of a song. And mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. which Stone song fits well with a windmill.
2: Yeah, I think he was just warming up, um, you know, just kind of goofing around backstage. But the, on a side note, uh, Glenn Johns was also at that gig. Um, he was the lead singer of a band called The Presidents at the time. Uh, and he. we will talk about him a little later when we talk about the album. They go into the they go into the studio as a Detours. Um, they record a song that Townsend wrote when he was sixteen called "It Was You." It's the only recording of them with Sandin on drums, um, and they got it because Pete's dad was a session musician and he knew this guy named Barry Gray who was a music director for a show called The Thunderbirds. You know what the Thunderbirds are?
0: Oh God, yeah, that uh, like puppet a, show. The Puppet
2: show. It was like this puppet show oh. thing. It's essentially what uh, what uh, Team America
1: was a knockoff <laughs> of. Um, well, a little bit about uh, Pete's dad. Um, he was quite a musician. He was in the uh, the Royal Air Force. Mm-hmm. Um, it it, it, uh, it reminded me a little bit of, of Elvis. Elvis Costello. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I, his he brought mom. back that and his, his mother was a singer. Yeah, it reminded and, me a uh, lot of that. That they, they apparently it was very competent, and I think his grandfather was in the. Royal opera or something. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I wish I would have written that down, but his, his, uh, pedigree for music is pretty deep. Yeah.
2: Townsend said the song was, was, uh, pretty good, pretty powerful, but it sounded way too much like the Beatles. So nothing, nothing came from it. So then they decide, well, they don't decide what happens is, uh, as luck would have it, a band called the detours, not them is on TV, got a TV show called thank your lucky stars. And because that detours was on TV, the detours with Daltrey and Townsend and Entwistle <laughs> thought, well, they've got to be more famous than us and more more well known than us, so they dropped the name, changed the name. As it reminds me of that scene in Spinal Tap where they're talking about they're the originals and the guys down the street were the originals, so they changed their name to the new originals. <laughs> you know,
1: that's what it kind of reminds me. We've had a little bit of trouble with that ourselves.
2: We have. Um, <laughs> so they had to come up with a, they had to come up with another name. And the first two names that were thrown out were the group and the name, real you know. <laughs> cause, so you can see where they're going with all this. Pete P- Townsend actually came up with another name called the Hair, and then another <laughs> contender was called No One. Finally, Roger Daltrey is the one that said, "Why don't we call ourselves a Who?" And he and he liked that for two reasons. One is it made people think twice when they saw it, and then <laughs> this is a funny thing. It, he thought it would look really cool on posters, which it did. <laughs> it did. It did. So. Pretty amazing. So just real quick, uh, like the Beatles, uh, this band, The Who, has a bit of a drummer problem. And uh, according to Townsend, the drummer at the time, um, did not he didn't play powerfully enough with what <laughs> they were trying to do. And so uh, he was also 10 years older than the rest of them, and he didn't quite like the direction they were going. Uh, so he ends up leaving or getting kicked out, depending on who you're talking to. Uh, about it and they they for the time being they start using they, they're using session drummers for a couple of weeks while they're auditioning for a replacement um mitch mitchell actually auditioned for them did you know that
1: yeah i did that was in the book I did not
2: yeah mitch mitchell was was the drummer for jimmy yeah jimmy had move, move over serious. rover so anyway uh this is a great story so they're playing one night uh, and this drunk guy comes up in the audience and tells them their drummer sucks, and they ought to try out his out his mate, who's significantly better than the guy they are playing. So uh, during the break, they uh, say, "Well, why don't you why don't you bring your buddy over?" And <laughs> and this guy comes over all dressed entirely in in like ginger red. He's got a suede jacket on and suede pants, and it's Keith Moon and he's, it sounds like uh, Austin yeah, Power. it does like he sits behind the drum kit when they go get on when they go back on stage and proceeds to destroy the drum kit <laughs> he uh he um so um they're like this is our guy we want this guy and the problem was that the the who at the time had developed a bit of a nasty reputation and Keith Moon was actually not sure he wanted to join he was in a <laughs> he was in a surf band at the time um yeah, the and, what's that
0: the Beachcombers, I yeah, think, was their yeah. name.
2: Yeah, and he wasn't sure he wanted to to join, um, uh, but he ends up doing it. And um, and it's funny because Townsend said, from the time they found Keith Moon, it was a complete turning point. He was so assertive and confident. Townsend says before Keith Moon joined the band, they were just fooling around. That's how he believed. And yeah, I I don't I you may be able to corroborate this or not, Doug. But legend has it that the first time they officially played with them. Uh, Keith Moon brought rope to tie his drum kit down, because (laughs) the way he played, (laughs) the drum kit had a tendency to leave leave the stage.
1: (laughs) Well, the way he plays drums is, if you just take a picture of him being still, you can tell there's something wrong with him. Well, you hold the sticks in a weird way. The sticks are his... Uh, wrists are up high and the yeah. sticks are down low yeah. and it looks like he's mixing a salad it does it it's does. very strange
0: it really is it's, it's disturbing almost it's like you, you keep thinking he's going to break his his wrists or something anyway.
1: we've talked about uh I, I believe i said that if i could join any of the bands we've talked about it would be the moody blues because it seemed like they all get along so well and uh, they're all such gentlemen we are in the exact opposite world with these guys. Um, <laughs> they got to the point where they wouldn't even really unpack when they got to hotel rooms because Keith Moon would generally get them kicked out because he was destroying stuff. Yeah, and and Daltrey said that he thinks the hotels liked it because they could refurbish stuff after oh, the Who funny. visited. That's but, funny. Um, you got you got Ta- Townsend saying nasty things about people. You got Daltrey. Pounding people on the nose. Yeah. And then you got Keith Moon that's just out of control, completely out of control. And uh, this is, I mean, this might be the anti Moody Blues. (laughs) Well, if you look at even, I
0: can't remember what documentary or or book I was reading, but even Moon growing up, I always thought Moon was uh, not his last real last name, by the way, but it is his real last name. But he was just hyperactive his whole life and there, the teachers just would, were kind of giving up on him and just you know the guy did not have a, a bright future and drumming was basically the only thing he could probably you know ever be able to do because it just was an outlet for him to just be incredibly insane
2: by, by all accounts he was unbelievably funny like one of the that's funniest it, that's why both, both
1: of the uh, yeah and and uh, what's what's interesting is that uh, when they got a little bit of fame, uh, Roger Daltrey was uh, he, he had access to uh, many female uh, <laughs> admirers, and then they, and and then uh, Townsend said that Keith Moon was came right after him. Yeah. So uh, I, that isn't the usual order, I don't think. I know the bass player comes last, but um, I thought the drummer came <laughs> pretty early.
2: I don't know. The, 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 drummers in this era had kind of a different you know, they had a, an aura about them. You think about the other drummers that were around. I mean, Bonham was yeah. also you know. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, we, we can't really talk about The Who without talking about mods. And, um, yeah. and their first single uh, as The Who was actually written by their manager at the time. Uh, he convinces them to embrace this mod lifestyle, Pe- Peter Beaton is his name, and he's he's really into the mod lifestyle. Um, does somebody want to explain the mods? I mean, I can... They're
0: basically the guys. I mean, it's it's a very much of a group of men that rode around on motor scooters
2: with, lots, kind of mares.
0: Of, <laughs> with lots of mirrors. Lots
2: of mirrors. Well, they 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 loved. Rhythm and blues, American rhythm and blues music. They dressed to the nines. I mean, they were. They, they were zoot
1: suits, didn't they?
2: Some, but yeah, it was all about fashion. It was a, 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 just a, a British really? subculture. But, um, I
0: mean, it's punk. It's like what what punk rock, you know, where the people were putting airplane glue in their hair and wearing leather uh, outfits and with pens through them and stuff. They were, this was the,
1: opposite. They, <laughs> they was were the contra- opposite. they were contrasting <laughs> themselves with rockers.
2: Yes, the greasers. Yeah. they also later on in the um, when the punk uh, rock movement started happening in the UK, when the British punk scene started, the mods were also anti-punk, and they would they would uh, you would like they were gang fights between punks and mods in the in the in the late, in the late or mid seventies um, because of that. But anyway, this guy, uh, their Peter Meaden embraced this mod lifestyle, and in fact, he convinced the band to change their name to. The high numbers to appeal to the mods, um, yeah, and uh, and so well, the
1: the high numbers is about shoes. Uh, it's uh, they were they were wearing stolen bowling shoes. Oh, is that what that is? And yeah, and so huh. the uh, the higher the number is, the cooler you are. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, and there's actually
2: their first single was called Zoot Suit, and the and it was the B side was I'm the
1: Face. By me, baby.
2: face was also yeah. a mod term it was like the highest compliment it was like the top guy was the face so and they, um,
1: they got a group together they called them the Hundred Faces, yeah, and uh, it was kind of a fan, cl- a super fan club, the elite fan club right. that would go to all of their shows.
2: Yep, and they, um, and this, this song was essentially a, uh, both songs were re- rewrites of of other R. and songs. Uh, Zoot Suit was a copy of Misery by the Dynamics, and The Face was yeah. a copy of Slim Harpo's "I Got Love mm-hmm. If You Want It." Anyway, yeah. the song didn't do very well. Um, they printed or they, they re, uh, released or whatever, printed up a thousand copies or so. Um, the band ended up changing their name back to The Who. They found new management. And this new management was Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp. Um, they saw these guys at the Railway Hotel while they were looking for a unknown group to be in this film that never officially got made. Although there's some amazing footage of them. Uh, playing in in the railway hotel that's that we'll put on the website. Um, it's really, really great. but uh, the new management encouraged Townsend to start writing his own music like the Beatles did. And so the result of that was their very first real single as the Who, which was can't explain. <laughs>
1: Which is a fantastic song. And uh, it was blatantly yes. trying to copy the Kinks. which Ta- Who Townsend loved. He was a big influence of them. Um, the uh, Before we leave the mod thing, do you know which band said, we're the real mods, these guys are just Oh, losers. it was the Faces.
2: Yeah, because the, they were. The
1: Small Faces yeah. uh, had a lot of contempt for the uh, pretend mob, yeah. uh, pretend, uh, uh, the pretend, the who pretending to yeah, be who, mods. Yeah, the
2: who were... Uh,
1: Manufactured
2: mods. And, and Adultery
1: the, has so much contempt for the whole mod deal in his book. Well, he's uh, out of the
2: four of them, seems the least. Um, least Modian. The least Modian.
1: <laughs> All right. We got a game of connections, ladies and gentlemen. This is where we try to compare uh or or to find connections with previous albums we've talked about uh tony yes sir it sounds like you have a connection in mind
2: yeah the rhythm guitarist on the single for can't explain was none other than jimmy page
1: that's right
2: right he's also on the b-side bald-headed woman right uh i've got another one
1: i know you do tony Take it away. So, on the album
2: we're talking about tonight, on Who's Next, uh, Nikki Hopkins plays piano on that album. And Nikki, Hop- That's right. Nikki, Nikki Hopkins, most famously known for She's a Rainbow, playing piano for She's a Rainbow, the Rolling Stones songs, but he's all over the Kinks of the Village Green Preservation Society, an album we did early on.
1: And that whole decade of music. Um, yes. And we've yeah. talked about She's a Rainbow before many times. That keeps coming up because. It's it's such a great song that doesn't sound like Rolling Stones.
2: <laughs> Here's another connection. So the the Lifehouse project, which we'll talk about, which is what the basis of this album we're talking about tonight was. They they record started recording that in New York, and when Glenn Johns took over as producer, and they moved to the UK. The very first place they recorded, they ended up not recording the whole album there, but the very first place they recorded was Big Jagger's studio, which mm-hmm. was where. Houses of the Holy. All that's right was recorded. I forget the name of the studio.
1: Yeah, but I do remember that. And I, I tell you, uh, when we talk about connections, the thing that surprises me most is how few there actually are for a band that's in the middle of all of this going on in the British Invasion. Mo- most of the time, when we talk about this, they're all overlapping each other. All the, I mean, it, we'd expect to see Jeff uh, Beck pop in (laughs) uh but roger daltrey said something interesting in his book and that's well sure we'd see these people but we weren't friends with them we weren't talking with them we weren't drinking beer together we were drinking beer with people no one's ever heard of and uh by the way tony and i've already had this conversation but of all the all the people in the band the one i'd really like to have a beer with would be roger daltrey he sounds like such a, a regular interesting guy.
0: He also sounds like um, he had exerted a little bit more control over the band than I thought. I was uh,
1: surprised let, by that, too. It's it's yeah. almost like he's the only adult, and uh, you, right. when, when I look at a band like The Who, I assume the singer-songwriter is going to be the boss, and uh, no, it's not that way. It's no. uh, And even t- in Townsend's book, you can tell, is the one on stage calling out what's the next song, and uh, – he's uh he's the one that he, drives the van and uh, he's the one that has the least involvement with drugs so yeah. uh, that made him a little bit more competent
0: yeah and he also uh just like says if I don't I'll tell Pete like I'm not singing this song yeah. It's your song and you can do whatever you want with it but I'm not singing it
1: and, Daniel, and Pete can sing.
2: He can. <laughs> he's he not Roger well. Daltrey, but he can sing.
1: Uh, um, the fact that he's not Roger Daltrey is one of my favorite things. Is when uh, two voices uh, or or more, um, they really help bring out the gift of the uh, each voice helps bring out the gift well, of the other voice. It, and in this band, that's really true. It, it's in worth, this album that's so obvious. Well, yeah. it's
2: it's worth mentioning. About this band The way these guys harmonized Was unlike any other band From the Bruce When they sing If you listen to Like listen to Can't Explain Or listen to uh, The Kids Are All Right That doesn't sound like anything else that's coming out of the UK or anywhere at that point. It's I don't know what what they're doing, but their vocals are unlike anything else, well, the, and they're great.
1: The the thing that I think works so well is, um, they don't overlap at all. Yeah, it's right. almost the exact opposite of Blood Harmony. Yeah, um, and and that's the first song we talk about tonight is a perfect example, uh, where you have. Daltry's voice sounds more powerful and Townsend's voice sounds more clear and pure because they contrast with one another Well, um,
2: let's just real quick run through this so we can get to the album, but um, so they uh, can explains a, a big hit It's a top 10 UK single. It's followed by my generation in 65 which Townsend uh, Has an interesting story about what that song's about which I never knew which both of them involve a car <laughs> and One of them involves a the Queen mother uh suppose oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, supposedly he had he had a hearse and he in and, and they had, he had moved close to Buckingham Palace and he was parking it on the street and she drove by it all the time and it reminded her of her dead husband so she had it moved and it <laughs> upset him tremendously. Um but uh and then the other incident was when he had a he had a Lincoln Continental and he was driving it around and this woman gave him a stink eye and said something about oh driving your parents car or something and that also Knocked him off. But what, what's what's kind of fascinating about this song is it starts the who, whether they want to be or not, to sort of symbolize this generational. Thing. S- They're there's spokespeople for the generation. When the kids are all right, my generation, these are songs that are sort of angst-ridden songs about teenagers, you know, being full of angst. Um, so, And
1: this is really the first generation where there were teenagers, where there <laughs> were... Uh, before that, you went from okay, you're a kid. Now you're a man. Get a job. Go do yeah, something. Exactly. And this is where right. we first start having this period of time called adolescence, where you have these young people with cash in their pocket. Right. And uh, Townsend makes a big deal out of this in his book about uh, this is what made rock and roll possible. Is is this uh, this gap created between adulthood and childhood? Where uh, mm-hmm. you got all these angst. and then uh, can't explain was, was perfect for that crowd because they got all this stuff going on inside of them and they absolutely can't explain it. Yeah, and uh, he gets into a conversation with all these mods and they go, Why do you like the song so much? And you know what they say, What can't explain? <laughs> that. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, yeah.
2: so that their debut album comes next, which is called. Uh, my generation or in the U S it's called the who sings my generation. And yeah. it contains a title track, obviously, as well as just the amazing kids are all right. I just love that song. Uh, so we're going
1: to, uh, if you weren't going to do it, the kids are all right. It's one of the greatest pop songs of all it time. Is.
2: So it is. Let, let's segue into this, even though this isn't the song he's talking about. One of the reasons I have such a fondness for this band was Pete Townsend coined the term power pop to describe, um, this the song pictures pictures of uh pictures of lily um yeah and he and he described it as that that they play pop music but it's power pop it's powerful pop And, and uh, The Kids Are All Right falls straight into that. So does uh, Pictures of Lily. So I, mean, does... I could
1: never figure out what Pictures of Lily was about. You're joking, right? <laughs> I hope you're joking.
2: Um, yeah, we won't get into that. Um, Substitute is also a song mm-hmm. that's a great power pop song. <laughs> The funny thing about Substitute uh, is that there was supposed to be a guitar solo in it, and what happened was, <laughs> uh, when when they're getting to that point, Entwistle says, thinking to himself, "This should be a bass solo," and so he just turns up his bass so loud that they can't get it out of the mix, and it ends up he ends up convincing them to keep it. So it ends up being a bass solo.
1: <laughs> that is a. Uh... That was a perennial problem between Pete Townsend and, and, and Whistle. and then finally Pete said, "You know, if you if you keep it low, like you're you're waiting <laughs> for the right time, and then you come up loud, then it's so much more powerful." So he got John to do that, but once he came out loud, he'd never take it back down. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> He did.
2: well, and it's. I mean, it's not like I mean, my generation also has a, a Jan yep. talked about it. One a of great, the most famous great bass, bass solos of all time. Um, And then there's their second album, A Quick One comes out, which is uh, their second studio album. It's got oh Happy Jack. Happy Jack
0: wasn't old, but he was a man. He lived in the sand at the island. what I'll sing he would so they on his
2: great yep. song another pops great. great pop song um, and uh, and it's uh, it, it hits the top 40 in the US that song in particular okay okay and so the who sells out um, is uh, I don't know if you knew this or not but the jingles on that album were produced by Pam's production out of Dallas Texas.
1: And that's why we're experts.
2: That's right. That, is, that album also includes I Can See for Miles.
0: I can see for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. And miles, and miles. Oh, yeah.
2: Which uh, was number 10 in the UK and number right. 9 in the US.
1: Pete Townsend was so, so upset that that didn't do better.
2: Well, it was. it's their biggest the biggest hit single in the U.S.
1: Um, and that's the one where Roger Daltrey continued to bring up the fact he had to sit in a big tub of beans for that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's um, one of the
1: most unattractive album covers of it all is. time. It is. Well, you've got, but it's iconic as perfect. well. I it is. Giant. Uh, but tonight's album cover is one of the best of all times. Yeah, well, Townsend hates it.
2: (laughs) uh, We'll we'll talk about that. I'll tell you a little funny story about that when we get to it. But um, so, uh, yeah, we talked about then they released the single uh, Pictures of Lily and we talked about that being where he coined the term power pop. Uh, In 67, they perform in the Monterey Pop Festival and then they play Woodstock. And then next up is Tommy, which is a double concept album. That's one we won't get a whole lot into because Doug wants to talk about it.
1: It, But uh, It's worth noting that Nobody, especially Townsend, wanted to go do this stupid Woodstock thing. And um, Woodstock is going to play a big part of um, his in his imagination for the creation of this album. When they played Tommy live, they discovered what they could do. Uh, they were surprised by what happened when Tommy went live, and I think that was right. the university that uh, experience that that taught them what they were going to do on this album with a focus on the, the live production. They both, both Townsend and Daltrey talked about how shocked they were when this, when Tommy went live.
2: Well, and it was, the album was a huge commercial success for him. It was, I hit, I think it hit number four in the 69.
1: Um, and it also, uh, in the U S and number the, two in the UK got many of, um, Townsend's demons, yeah. uh, out, uh, out in the open. And, uh, uh, we didn't talk much about his growing up days, but he he was placed with his grandmother for a while and uh, some unsavory aunt. characters. Was yeah. it his aunt?
0: Yeah, he was placed with his aunt and some, some
1: some people who should not be around children uh, were over there. And uh, it has to be one of the most uh, profound influences in his life that, of course, yeah, comes but, out in Tommy and, and later. Quite a bit.
2: Um, it is interesting that it has, uh, in terms of the 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 war and the father thing, something yeah. similar to the wall in that yeah. in that aspect. You know, well, this this is, is,
1: a, is that post-war generation. Yeah, I mean, these exactly. guys are born right after the war was over, yeah. and um, Daltrey Daltrey talks a, a lot about um, about the war. This is at a time
0: where Pete Townsend and Kit Lambert were becoming. Uh, really close, and it, he was. Kit Lambert was kind of becoming a
1: sounding board for. Uh, Not kind. Of,
2: well, he's the one that convinced him to do the whole rock opera thing, right? Right.
1: It's it's really impressive. This guy ripped them off later, but yeah. Pete's writing this biography, and he's still crediting him with helping him get this out of himself. Um, yeah. So he's he's uh, in tremendously influential at this period and right. uh, gets a quite a bit of and credit put, from pete but one of one of the problems with the lighthouse project was uh townsend was thinking about a movie well it was again
2: uh like the like the wall i mean it's the yep. similarities are so weird it was going to be a multimedia thing where they were going to film part of the stuff they did live it was going to be a movie as well as an album there was going to be interaction with the audience and all that stuff. Um, we,
1: we kind of backed into the lighthouse just then. We should, we should uh, introduce that a little more formally. Well,
2: we also, I don't want to miss the fact that right before that they released quite possibly the greatest live album of all time. Yeah. Live, live at least. least. Um, which I'm not the only one who feels that way. I think a lot of people think that is the greatest live rock and roll live album ever Except made. Except for
1: Frampton comes along. <laughs> <laughs> So, anyway, yeah, so yeah. we got this rock opera, Tommy, which is a stunning success. Um, it was my impression that everybody was surprised by how successful it was. everybody was surprised how well received it was, and everybody was surprised how well it worked live and I think this got Townsend just completely absorbed one one character that we haven't um mentioned yet that is really important during this whole period is uh Meher Baba, um the um, yogi. Yeah. this guy has Townsend's complete attention. Um he well he is a yogi uh and a world world known um spiritual leader that uh has has a great deal of influence over Townsend, and much of uh, what we're going to hear tonight will reflect that.
2: Well, you had a book called The Mysticism of Sound, which uh, said that all music, sounds, words, and everything were nothing more than vibrations that that stretched out into (laughs) an ethereal place, sorry, in the universe referred to as the music of spheres. And that's going to have a huge...
1: We talked about that last week. Well, that's the song... When I said Holst by accident.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: Uh, one of the first songs that was written for this uh, for the life's house project is is one of my favorites by by Townsend uh pure and easy yeah. and
2: that's where the the
0: what the spiritual leader was kind of basically saying, that "Well, Towns-
1: had- Townsend was really conflicted because he had this uh, very sensual life going on with a rock and roll star, and then he's trying to uh, be a good follower, and well, the, um, doesn't the, doesn't pull it off."
2: The funny, the funny dis major distinction between someone like Roger Waters and Pete Townsend when they came to their feeling of so they both came to this weird place where playing in front of these enormous audiences had an immense impact on them. Townsend's way of going was, oh, I want to embrace that. I want to get them involved. Waters was, I hate all these people. I want to build a wall in front of them and shut them off from the rest of the band. It was just interesting how they... Yeah, the I, I didn't, didn't think about that, that, but that's, that's true. Um,
1: one, one of the things... Uh, I, we, we need to explain a little bit about this Lighthouse project. Um,
2: yeah, it's, the, the story behind it?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a dystopian novel. Uh, it's it's really interesting. I think I don't think it's uh, impossible f- to make a good film out of this, I'd, or a good story out of it. I, I think it was Townsend's embracing of something called the note, the one note, that made it uh, difficult for people to understand.
2: Yeah, you want to explain what that is?
1: Well, um, I don't. I, I wanted to talk <laughs> about uh, the, the world.
0: It's well, uh, the dark. Pure and easy, the first line of pure and easy. Is that's right. Easy. There once was a note, pure and easy.
1: That that's and, that was the, obses- the obsession with this. But this is basically a world where all the resources have been used up and there's uh, pollution everywhere. So they decide that humanity needs to go into a, a hibernation where the they're, they're, – it's kind of like a matrix. It's exactly up, like the matrix. Where matrix they setup, they yeah. just and plug it, them in and they have – virtual experiences at a mm-hmm. really high rate and uh, there's a group that doesn't go want to go along yep. and of course they rally around music and the one note and there's a uh, there's a bad
2: guy named jumbo who's of course. Uh, yes who's uh, you know the the uh, the villain of of he's like the head of the government or whatever that's in charge of the the grid as they call it um, it, it, it It's really convoluted. I will say this about most concept albums. When push comes to shove, th- they make very little sense. Most oh, rock and roll God. concept albums are, they they really, the stories are odd. Um, They're ba-
1: barely hang together. Barely hang together. And they together. require a lot of uh, help from the listener.
2: Yep. yep. But I'll, I'll yep.
1: tell you what, I think they all, a lot of them have in common is if a disciplined person, um, with that that wouldn't run off wild can get his hands around them they could be turned in to something usable and I, I think this lifehouse project could be turned into well something.
2: townsend obviously believed that a lot like uh like um brian wilson he re- revisited the, you know brian wilson with smile smiley smile whatever right. Uh, who he kept revisiting that the same thing with Pete Townsend. He revisited this project over and over and over again. Not only the songs from who's next from this, but he also used other songs throughout the who's career. And then he eventually released, I think his own sort of project. You can go online and there's people who have put things together that are what they think the lighthouse would have been. The double album would have been based on all the stuff that's been released. Um, You know, if you're interested in that, maybe we'll put a link on the website to one of those or something, but um, yeah, it it was, it was difficult for the rest of the band to get, uh, get behind the story. Um, They were having trouble with it. Like I said, they, they started recording it in New York and, uh, jam just let you just to, when you asked who their original producer was, it was Kit Lambert actually. Um, and he had, uh, when they started recording on it, they were filled out by Al Cooper also playing Oregon And of all people, Leslie West from Mountain.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Mississippi Queen That's fame. Right. Yeah. That's right. It failed as a story and as an opera, but it the songs that came out of it are absolutely remarkable.
2: And I want to say that it just goes to my opinion about double albums in general. I, I There's very few double albums, Tommy being one of them, The Wall being another one that I think hold up for the most part. Um, a lot of them are what they say is a lot of filler and no killer. Um,
1: and the greatest <laughs> example of all. Yes. The White Al- Album. Oh.
2: <laughs> the White Album does have filler in it. Um, but this goes to show you that you take, they took eight songs distilled from this concept and put them on this album and created a, a, a masterpiece.
1: Oh, so we're back in the uh, territory where we're, we're, we're with the Cars debut. Yeah, you, you.
2: Or Boston's debut. Yeah.
1: Or is this the greatest hits album? Yeah. Right. Right.
2: While they're in New York, um, they're they're struggling with recording this. Lambert's addicted to heroin, which doesn't help matters. Townsend hates nope. the way the songs sound, and he gets really despondent. He starts to drink heavily, and he actually hears Lambert commenting that they should just abandon the thing. He's like, "They should give up on this." And he try. And Townsend actually tries to take his life. He tries to jump out of the window and kill himself um he doesn't but they they end up firing him lambert as a producer okay. and they go and get glenn johns um who who thinks he can do something with it and they like i said they go to Stargroves and start recording it and uh and glenn johns agrees with um with Lambert, that they should probably abandon this and just pull the strongest songs off of it and make an album because nobody understands what this is. The band's not happy with it, you know. It's not going anywhere, and that's when we get the album we're talking about.
1: And the the thing that's going to grab us first that separates us from any other Who album is Townsend's been playing with this synthesizer. Yeah, uh-huh. and it's really remarkable what what happens with that
0: he's playing with two of them actually uh one of them being a a, one that comes up in our podcast frequently these days almost as much as the mellotron the vcs3 sends uh the lowry organ through the filters that are on this vcs3 And so that's where you what you're actually hearing is not the keyword from the vcs three, but a Lowry organ being sent through the patches on that. It'd been out for a while, but a lot had not really been used on an album before. Nobody really understood how it worked. And Townsend was just meticulous and and trying to figure out how it worked. But Townsend was just holed up in his in his. Uh, home studio, just playing with the Lowry organ and this BCS-3, he also acquired this monstrosity of a synthesizer uh, called the ARP synthesizer. Um, I can't remember what the ARP stands for. They went on to make smaller modules. Do you know what
2: what that's the most famous for, the ARP? No. It was the synthesizer used in Close Encounters of the Third Kind.
1: Oh is that right? That's yeah. what the,
2: that's what makes all the weird. Bom,
1: bom, bom, yeah,
2: that's the yeah. synthesizer they use in that.
0: So yeah, that was one of the first ones that actually had a keyboard associated it's with it. Good marketing if they got the aliens yeah. using it.
2: <laughs> that's right.
0: A lot of the sounds that he came up with for Baba Riley uh and for Won't
1: Get Fooled Again. And so it's uh, so segregated from the music. It's it's really oh, interesting.
2: It is. Yep. And, and before I say anything about it is is this the greatest Album opener of all time,
1: maybe, maybe. maybe. If if you're a uh, if you're a twenty year old dude that goes to the gym and you've heard this song that you think's cool, the song we're talking about, you know, as Teenage Wasteland,
2: <laughs> it is it is easily if it's not the coolest best of opener, it's in the top five.
1: It's got to
0: be, it, and it's. I this was the song that i remember seeing uh i guess when they were doing who's next there was again i keep coming back to this show, the show the video concert hall they showed the video from this and this is the song that turned me into a who fan it's all-
1: that's pretty cool <laughs> that's a lot of power baby um, <laughs> I can't figure out that it's that's what I love about this every you got a piano coming in that's yeah. delivering power it's every instrument is dishing out power on this thing
2: the synthesizers are based on this concept that he had where when he was talking about the lifehouse thing he wanted to bring people up from the audience and he was gonna feed their um, I, I, I don't remember what he's, what the, what he was going to like their vital signs into the synthesizer and have it play a repetition. And so when that, when the lighthouse failed, he decided, well, I'll just do it with Meher Baba. And that didn't work either. So what he did to try to emulate that was he just started using that lower you're talking about and using the marimba repeat fe- uh, feature on it. And then he just was- b- built off of that. Um, wow. and the reason it's called Bob O'Reilly is obviously because of Mirababa, and then this guy named Terry Riley, who was uh, who was a a big like Electronic. electronics song, music yeah. guy. Um, yeah. So I, I'm amazed. I'm amazed at the song that the guitar doesn't kick in until what almost a minute and a half into the well, song. That's
1: what's so interesting when you watch him playing live. Pete Townsend doesn't have anything to do for most of the song except hop around, and yeah. um. I usually think when there's a big entry with that kind of power, I think there's a big power chord associated with that. And in this song it's not. It's a piano and yeah. a bass and drums. And uh there's and the, the guitar done coming for so no and, and
2: uh the guitar.
1: You know,
0: Townsends singing. I mean, uh, Daltrey singing for a good bit before the guitar comes in.
1: And there's, he's never sounded it, more. No, th- <laughs> I mean his voice on this is it's no. But I can't imagine anybody else singing. Daltrey's this Daltrey's voice is is
2: remarkable, and it's perfect for what I mean. As you mentioned earlier, for what they're doing this interplay. Even when Pete Townsend comes in on that part, that the part that kind of fade, everything fades out. It works perfectly it's like pulling the bow back the, the 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 funny thing about this song is i always just assumed even now that it was super super long it's like just at five minutes it's maybe got a little that under. sound
1: like an epic song. it
2: does and it's not that yeah. long but there's something about it that makes it sound and, and i don't mean that in a bad way no you don't want the no. song to end um it's a it's just a it is just a fantastic song when- and i
1: when dolcher says "sally take my hand yeah. we'll travel. Yeah. that's as powerful as a human voice can be
2: and yeah. uh and then it it fades out at the end with this guy named Dave Arvis who was in a symphonic prog band called East of Eden um, he's playing the violin on it and i love that violin cuz it sounds with the when the synthesizer <laughs> kick in the violin's over it it sounds almost they I've heard people Leave say it. Celtic. Like a, it doesn't oh, yeah. sound Celtic to me. It sounds like Eastern European, like something. Can you say Gypsy? I guess they say it on this album, so it's okay to say it, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. It sounds like something that, you know, some Eastern European, and it's just really cool. Um, and I love the fact, and we've talked about this before, uh, I love the fact that uh, that when they play it live, Daltrey's playing that bit on the harmonica. It and works yeah. and it's so it's well. it sounds so cool. And it I works can't so,
1: believe... Yeah. Um, in fact, I, I watched it live a couple of times before I figured out. Hey, wait a minute! <laughs>
2: yeah, you're like yeah. Pump, you don't even notice. It? You're like, yeah, you're like, wait right. a minute.
0: Um, and the fiddle part was um, Keith Moon's idea. He was actually friends with uh, Arbus. Yep.
2: Oh, that's, so that's you, yeah, I didn't know that. Well, he
0: gets <laughs> arrangement gotta,
1: credit for that.
2: And and I don't yep. want it. I don't want to sound like a broken record, like we do a lot when we talk about specific aspects of an album that just are so great but the bass on this song is
1: so fantastic. Well, I, I would <laughs> encourage everybody to, oh, maybe we can post that on uh, the website where the isolated bass, the isolated yeah, bass. We'll do that. it goes so well with his his facial his yeah, hands are so busy and his face so, is so lazy.
2: This The band is so much fun to watch, even in Twistle, who's not doing much other than just his hands are flying all like, over the place. Um, yeah. yeah, this is, there's maybe not a more fun band to watch. I, I think live. I told
1: Tony before, but When when I get to uh, watching YouTube videos of bands, I'll I'll watch Southside for a long time, and I'll watch some Stevie play guitar. But I inevitably end up with uh, (laughs) watching the Who live, and uh, yeah, just can't be beat. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Well, what's next?
0: Well, the next song is "Bargain."
1: To find you I'm gonna i'm some man I
2: call that a bargain the best I
1: ever
2: had. Oh man <laughs> This uh this song starts off so fantastically you, you know, you just yep. got that. It starts off that kind of mellow bit, and then everything hits at once. The vocals, everything's and like, then bam. You know? What's uh, the
1: drum is <laughs> the drums the lead instrument.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, they really, it really is, or they are the lead instrument. Um, and then one of the things that's that's cool about this um, song is how it, it starts off with Pete Townsend playing. Uh, with his volume pedal on his, yeah. On his guitar, yeah,
2: um, uh, whatever one, he whatever he yeah. does throughout this song is great.
0: So, <laughs> so, but then at the end, the the synthesizers are playing what his mm-hmm. uh, guitar was playing, which I think is really interesting. But this song is about getting a bargain from God. I'm guessing it's a,
2: got the- it's basically a prayer. Yeah, it's not it's not getting a bargain about God. It's about. Um, uh, how much of a bargain it would be if
1: you lost everything
2: in order to be one with god that's the bargain
0: well that's the line one and one make one
1: that's yeah. that oceanic uh, eastern mysticism where uh, uh every every soul is going to return to the uh to the great soul and and this idea that we're individuals is a, an illusion and that's of right. course what the Barber Bar- Bar taught and uh, baba Bob. What I call him, Barbara? Barbara? SMH <laughs> um, uh, Beach
2: Boys. <laughs> what's Pete Townsend playing on this song? What, guitar? Yeah.
0: He's playing that guitar, that Gretsch. The that vintage Gretsch
2: that, that Joe Walsh gave him.
0: Oh, that's right. Right. It's a fantastic... He plays this a lot on the album. This also has oh, the, it.
2: the ARP 2500 on it, too. That Close Encounters synth <laughs> is on the song.
0: Yeah. That's the one that makes those um, portamento sounding uh, scent swirls at the end.
1: This this is a song that has lyrics that would stand on their own just read aloud. Yeah, Uh, I could I could see people using the lyrics for the song as a prayer.
2: You know, we've talked about this before with albums like this when when we you know you brought up the Boston album and the Cars album. Before I ever owned this album, I knew almost every word off of every song on this album. Right. Just because right. I'd heard them so much. And the great yeah. thing about all three of those albums is I never got sick of the songs. Ever. I never no. like, oh God, not this again. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The next song is Love Ain't For Keeping."
2: Is that the greatest pickup line of the 1970s? <laughs>
1: <laughs> the uh, love ain't for keeping. I, yep. I'm, I'm completely distracted by the acoustic guitar. Okay, so I'm a yeah. I'm a sucker for songs like this. Song is one of
2: those songs that I kind of put in that category of those British heavy rock bands that are that somehow do this country flavored thing. I, Bad mm-hmm. Company is that way, the song mm-hmm. Bad Company, this song is that way. I'd say the same yep. thing with uh, Hey Hey What Can I Do by Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. They have and I love that. I love when these bands right. that are just are so full the, these full of bombast bands like dial it down a bit and add that kind of country flair to whatever like, they're yeah, doing.
0: The drums are still so I love the way that, the, the three songs that you mentioned that they all have that Pretty heavy backbeat that you don't
2: find in, in
1: well country songs. I, I like what you said about bad company. That does sound very bad company yeah. and bad companyian. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the, the
2: funny thing about
1: this except song, except it's is better that, than anything. Yes, it one. is.
2: But Keith Moon is subdued on this song. But even that, he sounds like he's pounding the crap out of the drums, even though yeah. he's not doing what he normally does. And and yeah. man, is the bass great on this song. I'll just say it. Again. Oh, <laughs> oh, it's always great. That oh, that, great. that that bit in the bridge where Townsend sings and it's just the acoustic guitar and the bass yeah. line and Absolutely. and the whatever the electric is doing, I guess he's doing the same thing he did in in the last song, fading in and out. It's just remarkable.
1: Yep. Yep. there's uh, we're gonna have trouble disagreeing with each other tonight. We yeah. are.
0: All right. Well, we're gonna be moving on to. I think maybe john and best song my wife
2: This is uh, the first to two songs where the Who's a power trio. There's no Daltrey sure. anywhere on this song.
0: That's right, and uh, all the horn parts, well, that, and does are amazing. He plays the piano on it as well. Know,
2: yeah, he plays the piano, the bass, sings, and does the horn section. You know why the horn section's on here, right? Because he couldn't figure out a guitar part for that bit, so he just threw the horns on because he knew how to do that. Yeah. And it worked well. You, you guys think this is based on a true story? Uh, a little true.
1: <laughs> it's so funny. This is such a funny song. Well, tell the story. Well, It, it sounds like he gets thrown in the clink, and, and his, uh, he can't use the phone, and, his and wife, he's sure his yeah. wife is going to... Yeah think that he's yeah. been fooling around for another woman right, right, and he's right. talking about how he needs a bodyguard with judo and yeah. a machine gun because he's life. not going to have time to explain what really happened i maybe, love it it's so funny
2: maybe my favorite drums on the album on this song the drums are so great on this, on this well they're song. not hidden yes they're not
0: <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot that i love about this song and it, you know had you told me that it was john entwistle song other than it sounds like john entwistle singing i would have thought it was a pete townsend song but
1: even the way i don't think pet townsend's ever been funny like that yeah but this
2: is this is again i mean just because it's the only song he sings on it where his voice entwistle's voice is it's that perfect mixture of the two of them you you, you yeah. hear it and it's like okay that sounds sort of daltry-esque this sounds sort of townsend-esque it's yeah. perfect and that the, great. the end bit where he—I don't know what's going on. Where it's not just him. I guess there's some. I guess Townsend. Maybe well, he's can't...
1: got like uh, people answering, oh, call and response. That's so great. Uh, yeah. I, I'm so glad he did the horns. I'm I'm so glad he couldn't find a guitar yeah. part because they're great. And it's yeah. a great break too. Uh huh.
0: And it's got that nice low. Uh, I, I guess that's a baritone horn that that does that low, growly brass part, and then he's got those. Uh, The trumpets that that come in and kind of answering it. Mm -hmm. I love that. All right. The last song on side one. This song is over.
2: I'll sing my song.
0: I, the thing I love about this is how Townsend's voice is so sweet and pretty during the the pretty parts of that song, and then which we start, just
1: didn't hear. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. but then we hear Town, uh, then we hear Daltrey come in on on the harder parts where the drums start coming in.
2: It absolutely in a nutshell, demonstrates a difference between their voices, the pr- pronounced yeah. difference, and it
1: works so well on this song. So, yeah, um, it's you know, the best example of that. They, they complement each other. And here's Townsend singing about the sea again. Well, this was supposedly the last song for the pro- the Lifehouse project. And it,
2: again, it makes sense if you think about the lyrics. Um, this yeah. is a song also that, when we mentioned Nicky Hopkins, he plays piano on this song.
0: Yeah, and does a great job. And then those synthesizer lines, those the synthesizers. Yeah. Moving on to side two. We're going to start with getting into. I get a little tired of having to say, do you come here often? But when I look in your eyes, I see the harmonies and the heartaches I'm getting
1: Well, that's some bass playing there, Tony. Uh,
2: Is is there, there's got to be, I haven't looked, but there's got to be somebody who isolated the bass lines on this song. This, dear God, the bass on this song is great.
0: (laughs) This song is almost a perfect song. I mean, (laughs) I I absolutely love everything that everybody plays on it. I love it, it.
2: it's a toss up this song and and another song in the album are toss up of my two favorite songs on the album. And I wrote what you just said for the other song.
1: Um oh and I love whatever the guitar is doing on this too. I mean yeah. we heard it on that clip. Uh how many how many songs have been about music? Yeah. I mean, that's this is again that, uh um you know Baba uh, uh, Bob O'Reilly, that was influenced by uh um Woodstock and mm-hmm. it, These guys are breaking out of that uh, captivity and going to the place where the uh, people are all getting together and they're focused on music. And here we are with music and uh, Townsend's obsessed with music at this point.
2: I I will say the other thing this song proves to me is that um, Daltrey doesn't have to be shot out of a cannon, and belting out i mean he's he handles every bit of the vocals on this song very very well with aplomb i mean yeah the
0: the the way that he comes in singing it and just the way he delivers those first lines
2: yeah the uh the lyrics on this song imagery on this song are great but i i will say that in listening to this album intently like i have over the last however many weeks we've been listening to it uh Every time the bass comes in my face lights up. I just smile. I can't help it. It's just so engaging.
0: Is it, is it in the pocket? They almost could they no. could almost do the whole song with just Daltrey and the bass. Thank
2: God know? it's not in the pocket. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's It's just so it's just so fantastic. It is.
0: Yeah. Moving on to the second side or second song on side 2 going mobile.
2: So the second Power Trio song on the album, No Dalton Allowed, um, I really love what Keith Moon's doing. Those kind of rolling drum fills he does are so great on this song.
1: You could tell, you know, Townsend has a very good voice. Mm -hmm. And uh, this this song doesn't require uh, any chest thumping. No. And it's perfect for him. I, I don't know if y'all know this, but uh, his family bought a mobile home. And Was that what this is about? He was just complete. I think it's a little bit about him and his vacations with the mobile home and how much he loved. Uh, he, he talks about his little tape machine that he has with him. It's probably the most autobiographical <laughs> song on huh. on here. But I think and it I, also is connected to the I, idea of cutting loose from, from the uh, – the society in um, Lifehouse, yeah, and getting off uh, the grid. I,
2: but I think to be yeah. fair, if you pull those songs off of that concept, they they got to stand on their own to a certain extent. So, well, makes, I think they do. It makes sense that it's it's um, in the concept of the Lifehouse what you're saying, Jam. But in what Doug is saying, it also makes sense that the out that the song is a uh, is an homage to.
1: Well, everything in the concept the of the Lifehouse comes from his life, right, and his observation yeah. and his fantasies. And uh, he, to go on in your autobiography about your uh, your camper as much as he did. uh, Obviously, it was is important to him.
0: So, Tony, you you said you you know you you liked the way that the drums are on this. Yeah, it wasn't until the last couple of listens where I actually went. Well, those are really cool drums. I what you just said that kind of rolling thing that that he's doing. I heard that. A version of this, I guess, about ten years ago, where it was just Townsend. He was playing the. He played all the instruments. He was playing the drums. He was playing the. It was everything was acoustic guitar, and he was playing a banjo on it. And I always thought that 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 was the version, and I just went, "This is the album. This this is the version that should have been on the album." But now that I'm thinking back on it, i what, what Keith Moon's doing on um, with the drums on this. Does kind of keep this, like you're saying. Like we were talking the mobile thing going. It's like the drums are keeping the whole song. Like okay, we're I'm I'm keeping everything in. I'm going to say in the pocket. I'm keeping everything very rhythmically oriented. Then the drums are kind of propelling it, going okay. We're staying mobile. Yeah, this. we're not. It's working.
2: rolling along.
0: So the penultimate ultimate song on this album behind blue eyes
2: no one knows what it's like to be the bad man to be the sad man
0: behind blue eyes no one knows what it's like to be hated
2: in my opinion this may be one of the finest if not the finest song the who ever did I love this song so much. It's, it's flawless. It's gotta
0: be a five. I mean, it is so, so good.
2: And and again, Daltry is doing everything on this and he does it well. And then we're just talking about this is the one song where that Who Harmony kicks in and it's doing something that nobody I don't know what how they do that, but God, what a what an amazing song.
1: As a guitar player, listening to the competence of that. I know it's not. It's not complicated, but there's something yeah. about his perfect timing on that guitar. It's mm-hmm. absolutely um, yeah. perfect. Yeah. It, there's there's nothing's ahead or b- behind where it should be on that. Uh, I guess he's got a flat pick, and he's just playing arpeggios with a flat pick, but it's flawless. So, it is. It's the, so
0: full. I mean, everything's just his guitar. When he I wonder when he plays what he's plays,
1: playing guitar. that that's the guitar Football. sound is fantastic. Well, that'd be a big
0: hip center or something. And,
2: and and for Daltrey to go from that sweet sort of whatever he does into that that anger filled yeah. now. And this song was supposedly going to be sung by the main villain Jumbo in the Lifehouse project, but I have always thought it's almost sounds like it was written about Daltrey in some ways, you know, when my fist <laughs> clenches Well, open. the way
1: those two got along, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that the Jumbo that was Daltrey. Jumbo is based on him.
2: But, uh, I always thought that he, the reason he does so well on it is he can, he can, you know, the red mist is, is what the song sort of a, a, about to a certain extent. Um, oh, it's so great. It's so great. Um, this was not released as a single in the UK, but it was in the U.S. and hit number – only hit number 34, if you can wow. believe that. You know, the, the funny thing, Jam, early on when you are talking about how The Who was, you know, one of the biggest bands of British Invasion, their record sales and single sales don't bear out them being – like, they're, they weren't huge sellers. I mean, they're big and influential, but in terms of some of the other bands, which is weird because you think of The Who in that group. But, but they, don't you sure? think
1: they grew – after yes, one of these
2: bands had, yes,
1: like more a, a, a slow growing tree
2: yes, yes I think you're right about that that makes sense like early on I wouldn't be surprised if if you went back and looked at what this song or these albums did after the fact um, yeah. in terms I of mean
0: sure. can you imagine Hermits Herman Hermits uh, trying to sell out a stadium you know
1: trying to have <laughs> their song
0: I like Henry Keith <laughs> <laughs> Anthem
1: yeah. that is. Was, this is a stadium rock band, if there ever was one. Yep. Right? Can you remember when they played the Super Bowl? Yes. What songs they played? I remember they played "Who Are You."
2: They played "Won't Get Fooled Again" because I remember that when because we're going to talk about that song next. When he came to that scream, it was like Goosebump City. Because
1: <laughs> yeah. probably everybody's wondering, can this old guy still and do he it? Could? Yep. He could. I don't think he can now. I think they pipe it in, not. but uh, killed to tell you you can't do it now. What what else did they did they play behind blue eyes?
2: I don't remember. I just Cuz one
1: of these I think behind blue eyes might have been in the uh, one some TV show that people watch uh and it was like a theme like one of these cop shows I know that who I've are never you, seen. Liz? Yeah, I know that part was. Anyway, I I don't recall but um to to go through all of those great songs and then here comes this incredible song. <laughs> The last song
0: on the album, all eight and a half minutes of it, won't get fooled again.
1: Timekeeping synthesizer.
2: So I'm gonna yep. I'm gonna bookend my question that I asked when we started. Is this not the greatest ending song of any album ever? <laughs> if not, it's in the top five. Gotta um, be
0: so good, it? This is
2: the band firing on all cylinders. This song, right? It here. Is. And again, eight and a half minutes, and it doesn't feel it. There's nope. hand, there's handclaps in it, guys.
1: <laughs> Wait, is there anybody who wants to suggest <laughs> that um, uh, Keith Moon? Or at uh, Whistle are uh, keeping the band, <laughs> keeping time <laughs> for the band. No. Uh, <sighs> yeah, that's basically. Sort of, you know, something
0: <laughs> interesting about that is Townsend was just, they really didn't know uh, when to come in, when to stop, when to come back in. Townsend was just playing the synthesizer through the whole thing. And that part where, uh where it's just a synthesizer breakdown i guess it lasts for like you know it's almost the end of the song but it's right before
1: the scream Second, yeah right before the the
2: greatest scream again
1: i've about what's the competition i I have there's not i I don't think i don't think there is uh second place isn't even in the same city no
2: not Not even yeah that's like uh, me running a
1: marathon and they're announcing the the winner's while well, I'm halfway,
2: that, <laughs> and there's two. That, there's like the warm up scream, and,
1: and then the big and one. And
2: then the
0: big one. <laughs> but they didn't know. They they thought that they were done with the song, and they kept hearing that synthesizer that that or that Lowry organ through the the filters. They didn't know if that if the song was over or not. But they just that part just song, kept coming. I was just,
2: say, I was just about to do that.
0: And then they just, that's when Daltry, they said, okay, my God, the song is so cool, we gotta have an ending to it. That's when Daltrey came up with the scream well. And uh the meet the <laughs> old boss, same as the new boss.
1: Uh, except the it's new- the other way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. That has to be one of the best political uh, summations mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, it's uh <laughs> oh, it's such a great song.
2: Yeah, Goosebumps moment. So uh, just real quick to to follow up what you asked before. Pinball Wizard, Bob O'Reilly, Who Are You, See Me, Feel Me, Won't Get Fooled Again. Those are what they played at the Super Bowl.
1: I think I was thinking oh. of Feel Me, See Me. Anyway, uh, what a great collection of songs. Tony, I was wondering, um, did this compare at all to Talking Heads? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a synthesizer on
2: it. <laughs> yeah, a synthesizer um, on the Talking uh yeah, Doug, I I owe you a great deal of thanks for picking this album so I could take a respite from the Talking Heads and dial this up occasionally and go. Oh, this is what this is what songs sound like. <laughs> it,
0: it it it's an album from my teenage years that has stuck with me, uh, like few albums
1: from that time have. I knew I loved this album, but to spend two weeks. Listening to it, um, I I want to say I'm doing my duty listening, to, but I fell more in love with it than I thought was possible. So,
2: I was uh, I was walking around the uh, I was exercising with my wife this morning, and I was listening to some of the albums coming up. And not feeling them the way you would think I would. And I was like, "Oh wait, we're still doing the Who tonight." So I popped this on yeah. as walking listened to the last, uh, listen this as I was walking the last bit around. I was like, oh, thank
1: God!" Yeah. It's so fun to I'm. I'm it's going to be sad. Um, yeah. I think I expressed some joy last week when we finished up. It's going to be the opposite this week. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah.
0: I, I um. I wish we had more time with this. I wish I'd given more time to this album because well, I've given she... it
1: two hours tonight. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but anyway, it's a fantastic album. So we've reached the part of the uh, show where we uh, give our individual uh, ratings. We have two ratings on a scale of the one to five. Uh, one is our personal rating. That is, uh, how likely are we to listen to this album again? How did it affect us, um, and uh, how likely are we to recommend it to our friends? The second one is our critics' rating. Uh, like, do we what on the merits of the album, given its history, where do we think that it fits in as uh, one of the greatest albums ever made? So, I'm going to start with Tony and ask him
2: for his ratings okay will i listen to this album again hell yes
1: on the way Uh, home (laughs)
2: yeah i love this album it's got my favorite who song on it behind blue eyes the bass and the drums are just a blast to listen to it's loud when it needs to be it's not when it doesn't need to be it 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 passes uh I guess what I'm going to call the one arm some the one arm sun arm one sunburned arm test where you're driving with your arm <laughs> hanging out the window, uh, as I mentioned, uh, and that improves to a certain extent improves the experience. Um, I give it a five personally, and I'm going to give it a five critically. This is my second double five. I'm going to say exactly what we said the last time I gave a double five to American Beauty. If this isn't a f- double five, I don't I don't know what is. I don't know what you could call a double five, um, and. There, there's a reason why every song on this album got Airplay. There's a reason why it feels like a Greatest Hits album. There's a reason why it's their most commercially successful LP. It's a remarkable collection of songs. It's it's got, again, my opinion, the best song they ever did. And top five best opener and top five closer. If you keep, I don't know. Again, double five. That's all I'm going to say about that.
0: Okay, well, thank you for that, Tony. Um, I'm going to go next, since I was not the picker. I'm (laughs) going to do the exact same thing Tony did. Double five for me. This album uh, gets better with every listen. Um, It has two of my all-time favorite songs ever written. Um, And it the the closer is just a masterpiece i mean the whole album is a masterpiece but the the that eight and a half minute closer is there's just nothing like that in rock and roll and it it, people have tried to emulate it nobody has come close it is a fantastic closer It's a fantastic song on a fantastic album as tony said the opener is one of the greatest songs i've ever heard i mean it's bar none there's very few songs that have grabbed me the way Bob O'Reilly has, so uh, yeah, double five for me. So, Doug, what say you?
1: Well, <laughs> um, remember when we talked about the Moody Blues, uh-huh. and they were commissioned to make a rock and roll version of the um, Bourgeois, the New, New World New- Symphony, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is. Probably the stupidest idea anybody <laughs> has ever thought of, and uh, all this stuff that didn't belong together came together and produced a, a masterpiece. I, th- yeah. I view this album the same way. This is a an idea that ran into a brick wall. These, if you read uh, Townsend and Daltrey's biographies, one thing they keep saying is, "I can't believe we stayed together." Because yeah for the most part uh the two principal guys in this band did not get together did not get along very well they weren't friends they didn't call each other and say how you doing they weren't necessarily <laughs> hostile all the time but yeah. um the fact the fact that this happened at all is a miracle and it's it's one of those things where be careful what you do in adversity adversity may be creating something that you can't create on your own and i think that's what happened on this album i i think all the tension townsend had inside of himself and maybe some of the tension the band was feeling just oozed out onto wax and uh, we came up with the masterpiece of course it's five and of course it's five for me personally there's just uh, I, there's no there's not an option I'm sorry. This is if you've never heard this album before. I am so jealous for <laughs> what you are about to discover. <laughs> That's
0: a great way to put it. Um, so I think this is the first time we've had
1: three double fives. Uh, three it,
2: double it, fives. It, there, this this album deserves it. It. I mean, it's the. I would have. I would have been really disappointed if I had been the only double five. There's no way.
1: I would. I would have accused the person of. Lying.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Me too. It's like, I can't do 4 eight. There's no way.
2: Name a bad song on this album. You can't. No, Name not, a bad moment a bad- on this album. Name you can't. an
1: average song on the yeah. album.
2: Yeah, yeah, you can't. You can't. So, Doug, do you want to describe the album cover real
1: quick? Well, it is a uh, obelisk or a monolith in the middle of a... Uh, I can't remember. I, I did... Is this a coal mine? I can't remember what that It's sort of
0: it is just yeah. a, like a, a giant
1: concrete uh rectangle sticking straight out of black um dirt and yeah. it has been dismudged uh or wettened uh several places and everyone's zipping up their pants and uh one could conclude that everyone needed to relieve themselves and they s- decided uh, as the King James Bible says, they pisseth against the wall. And uh, that's what you look at when you see this album cover. And, of course, the name of the album is Who's Next? And I just think it's funny and very clever. And Pete Townsend so, didn't. <laughs> so the,
2: uh, here's my confession. I did not realize they, that they were, had urinated on that until about a week ago.
1: Oh, my goodness. I've
2: looked at oh. that album cover a gazillion times, and for some reason it never clicked. And I'm looking at it, I was like, wait a minute.
1: Wait, don't, you don't sit down, do you?
2: <laughs> no, I don't <laughs> sit down. But I, I, I don't know how, maybe because I had the cassette, I don't have any idea how I did not
1: know that that was going on. And it was this amazing
2: epiphany. It was like, holy cow. I can't
1: believe <laughs> did it. Did the name <laughs> make sense to you all of a sudden? Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, but, but You want to
0: know another? You wanna, they were actually in a van looking for places to take the album cover photo, and they chose that place because it looked like two thousand the obelisk in 2001. Yeah, because,
2: yeah, um, you know that um, Pete Townsend was the only one that actually peed on that thing. The rest of them, I guess, had bashful bladder, so they used rainwater to splash on it, but he was the only one that uh, let her rip, so to speak.
1: (laughs) Well, Well, it's, it's an iconic album cover uh, yeah. One yes, of the and greatest I, classics I, of all time. I'm
2: not afraid to throw myself at the mercy of our listeners at what a dumb dumb I am for not knowing that.
1: Good <laughs> so. thing you're already married. <laughs>
0: yes. So thanks for listening to this episode of Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. Please send us an email if you're up for it at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. You can also visit our Facebook group page. Or leave us a review wherever you download this podcast. We'd love to hear from you. To get the best that you can from our podcast, please visit our webpage at www.tappingvinyl.com. You will find so many things up there. You can communicate with us. You can leave us a review. You can let us know what album you would like for us to review in an upcoming episode And you can find so much good stuff up there related to uh, albums we've talked about in the past and albums we're going to be talking about in the future. So please visit that if you get a chance. Next week, we're going to be reviewing an album by a band at the forefront of the heavy metal music scene, Black Sabbath, and their album, Paranoid. (laughs) Paranoid. our host Doug Cooper our co-host Tony Slagle and me your humble producer Jonathan J.M. Rowe this is Vinyl Tap for all the podcasts go to 11 and remember don't get fooled again